Welcome to The People on K-Chung, 16.30 a.m. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White, and we'll be your host here on The People. And The People features the voices and ideas of the people that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. On K-Chung, 16.30 a.m., we're here every third Sunday at 3 p.m. And if you're in Chinatown, Los Angeles, you can actually set your dial to 16.30 a.m. and listen. Or... Um, anywhere in the world where you have the internet, you can go to kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org and uh, listen to their live stream there. You can find out more about the people um, at insertblancpress.net. Uh, I'm Matthew Timmons. I am the editor and publisher of Insert Blanc Press, and we kind of host uh, this show, The People. Um, so if you go there, you can find out more about the guests we have on today, um, David Shook and Jason Kunke, and uh, you can, you know, see some images of their work, things like that, uh, at the People's Blog. Um, so yeah, please join us here every Sunday at three p. Every third Sunday at three p.m. Uh, this is Radio for the People, featuring art, literature, talk, cultural criticism, visual culture, and so much more. The people is me, the people is you, the people is we, and you can too, like a broken record magically repaired. Yes. The music you heard at the top of the show was called Ock Fifth. It's a piece by Lewis Keller, who's a Los Angeles-based artist and musician who also works in performance installation, fabrication, and digital media, and he's also a very nice fellow. All right, so our first guest on The People uh, is David Shook. Uh, David Shook grew up in Mexico City before, uh, before studying endangered languages in Oklahoma and uh, poetry at Oxford. He has translated Roberto Bolaño's Inferrealist Manifesto, indigenous Mexican poetry from the Isthmus Zapotec, and oral poetry from the Burundian Batwa. A chapbook version of Oswald de Andrade's Cannibal Manifesto is forthcoming from Manifesto from Insert Blanc Press, and uh, his translation of Mario Bayatin's Shiki Nagaoka, A Nose for Fiction, is just out from Phony Media. He also edits Molossus and publishes Phony Books. His mustache is gener generously sponsored by Oregon Wild Hair Mustache Wax, the most literary mustache wax in the world. His first collection, Our Obsidian Tongues, was also recently launched by Eyewear Press. David Shook, welcome to the people. Thank you, Matthew. Welcome. Absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be on the show. The first thing we're going to do is actually play some audio, just the audio track, from a secret forthcoming movie shot by Ben Rodkin and yourself with Mario Bayatin. This is just the audio track, and the movie is called Baru.
too? Yeah. No, I live in LA. Only, only, okay. only for Marriott and he come back. Oh. Wow. It's romantic. They don't allow us to yet. Yeah. Well, only in some states. You can get married. Yeah. Are you actually married? In Mexico City, yeah. they, oh, they, yeah, they allow us to get married for like yeah. 10 years. You know? mm -mm. Why? I can't believe because that. Because of the Christians. But <laughs> Incredible. No, it's not a Christian. It's not a Christian thing to say you can't be in New York. New York, yes, no? Say it. It's not a real thing. She she usually wins, but today she's I think going into heat, so she's probably ah. she's like oh I don't think so I'm kind of on my period maybe yeah, tomorrow yeah. and you know <laughs> you know how us girls get little yeah, yeah. Emma, are you ready yes, yes. no yes. So that was the audio from a movie Baru, shot by Ben Rodkin and yourself with Mario Beatin. Uh, there's a lot of dogs. If, if the listeners didn't notice, there are a lot of dogs in the, in the movie. Tell us what this uh, movie was, what, how did it come about? Well, the movie's basically a, a sort of aesthetic investigation into the Saluki, a traditionally Muslim sight hound, um, so intelligent, according to Mohammed, that he suggested they should be subject to Islamic law. So we went out into the Inland Empire searching for these dogs, as dog searchers often do. And we encountered a wide range of, of personalities there, everyone from dog hoarders in Colton to a small one-armed boy. Um, very, very much, uh, you know, maybe perhaps an apparition of Mario as a, a boy transplanted. Since Mario is well-known in many parts of the world, but unfortunately not here, as, as well here in the United States, maybe you could talk a little bit about him, maybe even read a little bit about him yeah, for our certainly. American listeners not in the know. Yeah, Mario is a, a Mexican fiction writer and filmmaker. He's a practicing Sufi, published over 40 books, translated into 15 plus languages, won all of Mexico's major prizes, a few major French Prizes. In other words, uh, all of our listeners should get to know who this guy is if, he, if they don't already. They should, yeah. Last year he was the honorary curator of Documenta 13 and 
two of his most important projects are the Dynamic School for Writers in Mexico City and the 100,000 Books of Bellatine. And is, uh, what, is that title in Spanish, the 100,000, or is it, is it like Set Millar de Poem? Like uh, that, that. It's in that, Spanish. Like, it's in yeah. Spanish. Okay. Los cien mil libros de Bellatine. But it's kind. Of, it's almost like a nod to the Set Millar de the Quinault piece, the hundred thousand sonnets. Yeah. Yeah. But it's and books. He's, he's it's like, books. It's no, books. Mario, Mario raises the stake a little bit, like, oh, you wrote that many sonnets. Well, there's huh? a certain physicality to it. Yeah, yeah. And so far, I think maybe he has done 10 of the 100,000 of them. He does. He's doing each of the first 100 books he writes in editions of 1,000. And he distributes those exclusively himself. That's uh, the physicality of the book is is behind the entire project. You know that he could know actually where the books go to. The one thing they say on the the front cover is this book is not free, and the other thing is um, the author retains all rights, <laughs> and they aren't free. I mean, basically they're not priced either. They're irregularly priced depending on how much Mario likes you. So if you're a real good-looking guy like me, he might just give it to you for the um, pleasure of having glimpsed your... Baby blues. Face, yeah. But, um, you know, a guy like you, Matthew, no offense, uh, <laughs> might get charged five or six bucks. I think I got mine free from you, through you. Oh, that's paid for in pity. Ha! <laughs> Speaking of which, maybe you could describe also briefly your relationship with Mario as a friend, as a translator, like how, how you work with him. Yeah, well, Mario's a good friend of mine. I'm his, his least qualified and objectively worst translator. I've, I've translated his book, Shiki Nagaoka, Knows for Fiction. In a moment here, I'll, I'll read the preface. We've also collaborated on a few film projects. We're working on that feature-length dog film, Baru, which you guys heard an incredibly confusing clip from a few moments ago. We've also made some short films about A Nose for Fiction, which you can actually watch online at phonemedia.org. And we're also working on the screen adaptation of Mario's famous novel, Beauty Salon. So we're doing that. I'm, I'm working on translating one more of his books. I think it's all I have the stamina for. This one is a little unusual in that he hasn't written it yet. It's called Writing Lessons for the Blind and Deaf. And I'm translating it from the, the future Spanish. Excellent. Which is, it's been a, a challenge, but it's been very rewarding. Well, we look forward to that. Maybe now you could read from your translation of his book, Shigi Nakaoka, A Nose for Fiction, uh, which has, gonna which has preface, been written. Yeah? I'll read the preface, yes. Okay. Translator's preface, which I think gives some contextualization to Shiki Nagaoka, which is a, a biography of a, a very important Japanese writer. I'm honored to have ushered Mario Bellatine's biography of the great Shiki Nagaoka, a writer and artist almost entirely unknown to English language readers into English for the first time. And it's my hope that this new translation begins to redress his under-acknowledgement as a major influence on contemporary world literature. Bellatine's highly stylized study is the most important work on the author to appear since Pablo Solar Frost's 1986 monograph, Possible Interpretation of the Untranslatable Symbol. 
notable for its pedantry, perhaps best evidenced by the average mean tally of semicolons per page, 47. Unfortunately for English language readers, the 1953 edition of Nagaoka's masterwork, Photos and Words, published by Life in a digest format that included several monogatarutsis from the author's youth, was, as far can be determined, entirely pulped in early 1954, when it was seized by custom officials in the New York, New Jersey Port Authority on charges of obscenity. Nagaoka's accusers? The Society for the Respect of the Deformed, who ironically considered Nagaoka's own story too incredible to be true, and having determined his personality in a voix of farce and an insult to the truly deformed they represent in the perpetual struggle for societal acceptance, charged his work obscene. Translator Peter Rurick's eclectic reputation didn't help the book's case. His imaginative techniques included wearing a large prosthetic nose for the greater part of a decade that he might begin to see the world as Nagaoka did. Owing to the prominence within the society for the respect of the deformed of a certain Connecticut senator whose out-of-wedlock daughter's face was blighted with a birthmark not unlike Shiki Nagaoka's servants, though much more scab-like and hairier, the district court ruled Nagaoka's work obscene and rather than appeal, life ceded the political victory to the SRD, which dissolved soon thereafter in 1957, when its founder and president was revealed to have abused a string of cleft-palated secretaries in a fetishistic act which he termed gumming. The Spanish-language edition of Photos and Words, published in a beautiful but very fragile edition by Espasa Calpe in 1950, has been very nearly pulped by time itself. Though copies appear from time to time at auction for figures in the high five digits. The rights to photos and words and to almost all of Shiki Nagaoka's works now belong to the estate of Etsuko Nagaoka, administered by a trust helmed by her great nephew, a vain and short-sighted podiatrist who refuses to release the English language rights on principle as he remains offended at the January 1954 pulping of the Life Edition. Unfortunately, all of us English language readers bear the brunt of his blame, so scholarly American Nagaokites and frenzied shikinats alike must wait until the Treaty of Bern's 80 posthumous years expire in 2050. It's my hope that this introduction to Shiki's work and character, in the meantime, suffice. Well, before we move on to your stuff, your solo stuff, I think it's important for listeners to know about this book uh, that photography has a lot to do with it. So maybe, and I don't want to, I don't want to give anything away, but maybe you could talk about Nagaoka's relationship to photography. Yeah, Nagaoka is one of the earliest writers to incorporate photography into his work, and actually, he was a, a big inspiration to Juan Rulfo. Um, Post post Paramo, you know, and um, and also to um, Jose Maria Arguedas, who ultimately even felt with the intervention of of photography, he was unable to communicate what he wanted, and you know, you know how that went, or maybe you don't, but you can Wikipedia it after the show. Um, this book is is much like Shiki Nagaoka's own work. Um, kind of has a parallel track, a series of photographs that that run parallel to the text, but that don't describe it exactly. And and the book doesn't 
describe them exactly either. They're captioned photographs that that Mario's assistant um, found in doing extensive research in Japan and actually in some small Andean libraries um, outside Cusco. But photography was was very important to Shiki Nagoka. His day job, actually, as a writer, was um, as the attendant at a photography kiosk where he would accept people's photos to reveal them later in the evening at the local lab. And he's, actually that has a lot to do with his work and his, his personality. He had a morbid curiosity. He would, he would actually go through each and every photo before he gave them back, right, to the customers? Yeah, he wouldn't give all of them back. I mean, sometimes he would keep some, In the right? day, yeah, of negatives, you know, this is yeah. a, a while back, you know. Yeah. The, the digital <laughs> camera wasn't wasn't quite as popular then. So he, and, he stole a lot of photos. And this shouldn't come uh, as any surprise to anyone who's done their historical research, but that photo shack was also the location of his demise, correct? Yes, yes, that is um, where he was actually murdered one night by two, two drug addicts who tried to take his day's earnings. Which was minimal. Yeah, well, poultry. Yeah. Poultry, yeah. we'd say. He lived in a small shack that had formerly belonged to his sister's elderly seamstress. Never traveled more than about 50 kilometers from his birthplace. And in some sense, that's what makes his story so amazing, that such an important world writer could have inhabited such a, a small world of his own. There's a map, actually, in the book as a photograph. It shows, like, basically the three or four locations... Yeah, he would ever go in a very small space. the The story of his sister is also very interesting, and I feel like the the story of Shigenagoka himself came to light partially because of and in spite of like his sister's efforts. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it it is his sister. His sister actually wrote a a biography, which is contested by by many of Shiki's fans. It's called um, "A Writer Attached to His Nose." I think I think obviously, and and we we haven't said this explicitly, but Shiki Nagaoka was was possessed of a an extraordinarily, almost deformedly large nose, and and it does feature prominently in his stories. You know, especially the the short stories he he wrote as a youth, where the the protagonist of those stories is almost always a nose, if not a large-nosed person. There are, there's a series of especially delightful, erotic managatutsis where um, the, the erotic protagonist is an enormous nose. But um, I think her... The interesting thing about Itsuko, she, she was the only member of Shiki's family that embraced him throughout life. His, his parents disowned him when he entered the religious life and, and joined a monastery, monastic community. And Etsuko gave him the money to start his photography kiosk when he left the monastery. She met with him while he was in the monastery. There's some contentious information there. You know, it's, it's suspected that she contracted the killer that murdered his former servant, uh, I, I want to say slash lover, but that, that might be more one-sided than that, that suggests. So there's, there's a lot of drama. I mean, uh, we go into it in, in greater detail in, 
in this book of Mario's. And it's, but and you know, it's it's a really great book, and anyone sh- it's anyone should pick it up. It really is. It's it's both for an American audience, like a great introduction to Mario Bayatine, like a, a wonderful writer, and also to Shiki Nagoka, you know, a kind of almost lost uh, writer of, as you said, world liter- world literature. Even though you know, again, he like barely traveled, you know. And an important from... figure in the history of photography. No doubt oh, yeah, about that. For sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, certainly. I think he's yeah. a, he has a wide, a wide um, range of, of fields that he's important to. I think what's, what's especially interesting, what I just wanted to say quickly, Matthew, sure. was what I, what I find so inspiring about the life of, of Nagaoka is that though he lived in such a small space, he's so actively engaged with the larger world. And in some sense, that's, that's what I'm really interested in, both in my own writing and in my work as a translator and publisher. I mean, Shiki lived in this tiny little area, but he spoke fluent English, Spanish, German, and French. He translated to and from both of those languages. Actually, by the time he was 16, he would write his stories in English, translate them into Japanese, translate them back into German, and then back into Japanese. Because he believed only by, through that process of translation and retranslation, it was kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's kind of like skimming the dross off the gold or something. You know, he thought he could only discover the truly literary character of what he was writing by sort of passing it through the filter of language. He was very, very ahead of his time. Well, everyone should pick that book up again, Shigi Nagaoka, and goes for fiction. Go to phonymedia.org to check it out. Yeah, and to Um, see the films, the films about the the book, too. But before we run out of time, let's talk about you, David. Sure, I'd love to. Um, Do you want to just read from our Obsidian Tongues or talk about it or... Yeah, I'd, I'd love to read a couple. I think I'll just read two poems from, from my new book, Our Obsidian Tongues. The first one is, is from a series of postcards, and it's titled Best Western Weslaco Pool Scene, postmarked Weslaco, Texas, 19th of July, 1998, addressed to Lupe Peña de Iriart, Avenida Miguel Hidalgo, 56, Granjas Lomas de Guadalupe, 54760, Cuautilanis Estado de México. It's a long title. It might be longer than the poem, but it's in smaller print, so I don't think I've read it aloud before. You know how this begins. After two days, they demand more money than we agreed on. And what can we do, right? We're out in the desert in a town made of tents, cinder blocks, and semi-trucks. We're thinking of ways to find cash, because they put what we eat on a tab, too. Even though you did what we told you, like my wife did what we told her, they still wanted more. He was vomiting by then, thin pink strings that striped the sand outside our plastic tarp. He heaved at night. I told him we should wait it out till something changed, and I shouldn't have let him demand we leave. I'll just say it. Your husband died. And this second poem is actually after a poem by the young, late, young poet, Moises Naufrago. It's called Praise Song for Santiago Matamoros. I praise you for knowing us from moors, 
for recognizing our skin not as their desert leather, our hearts not as their small stones, like the pits of dates or apricots. I praise you for your wooden ears. They do not ring through our hourly barrage of rockets, buzz of sparklers beneath your concrete dome. I praise you for mezcal, tequila, beer, unnamed liquors in their faded plastic two-liters. I praise you for revenge, for mosquitoes' palate, for imported blood, for dengue, malaria, E. coli, some cholera, for guilt. I praise you for the dam they couldn't build, for the cattle killers whose black tails lick the ankles of thieves, know their prey by scent and heart alone. I praise you for mezcal, again. I praise you, Santiago Matamoros, Santiago Mataindios, Black Santiago on your cloudy horse. Excellent. One of my favorite poems in the book. And we don't have a ton of time left, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the character of St. James and how he's used uh, in the Reconquista and then subsequently in the conquest of the Americas. I know that's not a two-minute conversation. <laughs> I mean, it could be. It could okay, be. We can let's make it, it in two. There. You know, let's just make it a dense two minutes. All right, <laughs> go. So, well, Santiago Matamoros, right? St. James, Moor killer. He's sort of the patron saint of the expulsion of the Moors from Spain. When the Spanish came to the Americas, they sort of equated the indigenous people of the Americas with the Moors. So they transplanted this, this figure, Matamoros. They changed his, his nickname from Matamoros, which is still the name of a lot of towns in the American South and Mexico, to Mataindios, Indian killer. And he became St. John, Indian killer. Or St. James, excuse me. He normally rides a, a white horse. And um, sort of the, the end of this is that, you know, I'm not sure the timeline exactly, but within a hundred years of the conversion, the sort of official story, the official narrative of the indigenous conversion in Mexico, the indigenous people had adopted St. James, Mata Indios, as their own protector and patron saint, but in a, a slightly different form. He, he became Santiago Negro, Black James. And you see him now. He still rides his white horse, but he's a, a black St. James. And this poem is actually refers to a very specific um, small Catholic church in a, a Guerrero Nahuatl community in south central Mexico, where, and, and on St. James Day, um, they would blow off these basically bottle rockets inside of this tiny concrete church and you thought you were going to die you know the sound was unbearable but but that's sort of where where I learned the story was actually living with an indigenous Nahuatl family who was celebrating celebrating the day and and asking them you know hey why is why St. James Black? One thing just to say a little bit about this this book Our Obsidian Tongues is it is a kind of a wonderful almost it's like it part of the form is like a bunch of postcards but it it uses uh, some of the work that you translate sometimes in a few poems, like just the first stanza of, some, of another poem. Um, but it's also, I feel like, bringing a lot of different kind of uh, 
views of Mexico City uh, into into like one place. It's like it's really a great it's a great book. I mean, as well, you're like doing these kind of uh, these pieces in between poems that are more like kind of casual. That's probably one of my favorite things about the book. I don't want to call them casual, but they're like interstitial poems. Um, really great stuff. If you can, you should go to davidshook.net and pick up this book, Our Obsidian Tongues. It's a nice, handsome, hardbound edition. Really gorgeous. Yeah, see, yeah, exactly. See, that works on radio. Um, but uh, thanks so much for coming and being on The People. Thank you, David. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, we really had a Thank great the time. people. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to the people. You're listening to The People on K Chung, 1630 AM. And our next guest is Jason Kunke, who's a Los Angeles-based artist whose practice includes sculpture, installation, video, and performance. Uh, and it examines how authority and aesthetics inform each other. He got his MFA from CalArts in 2007 and his BFA from University of Houston in 2004. He's shown nationally at Palvo in Chicago, Commerce Street Artist Warehouse in Houston, and 25 CPW in New York. In Los Angeles, he's exhibited at Sea and Space Explorations, LAX Art, and Dan Graham. And along with five other artists, he co-runs Elephant, an artist-run space in Glassell Park. Jason Kunke, welcome to the people. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, how's it going? It's going. It's going well. Good. Um, so we're really excited to have you on the show. Uh, you, and we're going to talk, first off, about a piece that you've been kind of working on for several years. Mm. Um, and that is Dispersal Order. Is that the correct title for it? Yeah. Yeah. They're all named Dispersal Order. I've been working on them since uh, 2008, making mimeograph prints. Right. Yeah. And an image of versions of it are up on the people's blog, but maybe you could describe it sort of visually to sort of kick us off. Uh, well, it's uh, sourced from a riot control manual for cops, basically explaining what to do in the event of a riot. Uh, and in that manual, there is an amazing photo of uh, two really dumpy looking cops uh, holding up a dispersal order, which is a legal necessity before you, you whoop open up a can. Uh, and this is, and the, the, this riot manual is not like from today. This is like really old school, right? Yeah, I think it's from the early 80s, late 70s. Um, but yeah, yeah, so dispersal orders is before the cops start hurting people, they have to announce they're gonna start hurting people. And this, this photo is a demonstration of how to do a proper dispersal order. And, and it shows the front, which says, this is an unlawful assembly, disperse at once. And then the back says, disperse or we open fire. And it's, there's some... Wait a second. Yeah. That, it says that on the back? It says that on the back. So well, why have two banners, you know, when you could have one, just flip it around. Well, you have to set comes. up the, the punchline, right. I guess. So, <laughs> yeah. Wow, I didn't know that at all. That's absolutely nuts. Yeah. So uh, the, the piece, uh, which I sort of keep recreating, is uh, an, an image of the text from the front, remade essentially at life size. And I originally started doing it using uh, mimeograph ink and sort of a homemade mimeograph stencil. And just quickly, um, what you know, what is mimeograph? It's, I mean, I'm guessing in today's day age, we're on a podcast right now that mimeograph may people may not know exactly what a mimeograph is. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty outdated technology. It's pre photocopy, pre Xerox. Uh, it, it was it was a way of making copies um, that involved. Uh, ink and very special stencils using mulberry paper and wax resist. 
Yeah, so, so for example, like, uh, I could, you know, I could put a sheet of this mulberry paper that has, like, a wax coating on it in my typewriter, mm -hmm. type up a page, and the keystroke would take away the wax in those spots, and then when you run it through a machine, the ink goes through... Like the key, the letter, the letter form right. is really, right. you know, takes away the wax and then the ink is able to go through there. Absolutely. So, but you're, but that's like an eight and a half by 11. You're working with something. Uh, I think it's about 24 by 80. <laughs> so it's a little bit bigger. It's actually multiple stencils uh, cut together. Um, yeah, mimeograph technology, uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's certainly outdated, but it kind of had this important moment in uh, the late 50s, early 60s. Right. Um, it, it actually was a big part of this thing called the, the mimeograph revolution, uh, which got its start really with uh, sort of uh, fan magazines, science fiction enthusiasts would make these zines and share them, but then that became, uh, especially in the Bay Area, part of uh, independent publishing, right? Like, uh, especially poets. Um, it, it sort of allowed the, the, the first real concrete poetry to mm -hmm. be disseminated. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, think, I think even Black Sparrow Press kind of got its start around that same time, essentially as a mimeographed zine. And so in that way, it, it found itself sitting right in the middle of protest culture, correct? That's right, yeah. In, um, what, in what way? Um, well, for student uprisings, uh, especially specifically at Berkeley and then later Columbia, it was an important way for the, the organizers of the occupations to, to disseminate information amongst their groups. That was a, an important function of, uh, important part of, of occupying these buildings, yeah. And so you brought in a piece of audio for us um, today. Can you just tell us a little bit about it and then we'll, let's play it. And yeah, it's actually a clip from Democracy Now! Uh, back in 2008, uh, and it's, it's a, an excerpt of excerpts. They're, they're listening to a documentary about the Columbia uh, occupation of 1968. Which should we uh, have you describe what that was briefly? Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, actually... No. Okay. <laughs> let's, yeah, let's play it, and then we'll, yeah. we'll talk about the history behind it. But here we go. Um, yeah, here we go. We now demand we no longer have a say in decisions that affect our lives. We call on all students, faculty, staff, and workers of the university to support our strike. We ask that all students and faculty not meet or have classes inside buildings. We have taken the power away from an irresponsible and illegitimate administration. We have taken power away from a board of self-perpetuating businessmen who call themselves trustees of this university. We're demanding an end to the construction of the gymnasium a gymnasium being built against the will of the people of the community of Harlem. A decision that was made unilaterally by powers of the university without consultation of people who, whose lives it affects. We are no longer asking, but demanding an end to all affiliation and ties with the Institute for Defense Analysis, a defense department venture that collaborates the university into studies of kill and overkill 
that has resulted in the slaughter and maiming of thousands of Vietnamese and Americans. Students at Columbia moved to take over buildings despite warnings from campus officials. To, to show the solidarity of people with six strike leaders who had, they had tried to suspend, they decided to take Hamilton once again. set up barricades inside the administration buildings. First day in math, we set up a defense committee which took care of putting up the barricades. We decided what our policy would be toward police, toward jocks. We soaped some of the stairs. We taped the windows. We emptied bookcases and put them up in front of the windows in case tear gas canisters did get through the tape. And it hung up a lot of people when there'd be a little scratch or a mar on one of the marble top desks or something. At the second time we built barricades, these hang-ups disappeared, and we decided that barricades were necessary politically and strategically, and anything went in making strong and, this time, permanent-type barricades. Defense is all taken care of. Security is a problem. Letting people in and out of the buildings. Watches. We need people to watch the windows every night. We had a walkie-talkie set up, citizens banned walkie-talkies. Plus, there were telephone communications to every building, which the, the university tapped. We had three mimeographs that worked constantly, and there were people who did nothing during the strike but relate to the mimeograph machine. And there was a big sign on the wall, quote from somebody in Berkeley, which says, uh, five students and a mimeograph machine can uh, do more harm to a university than an army. So the Columbia Revolt is a is, was a series of activities that took place around student protests in 1968 at Columbia University, where after uh, students discovered a link between the university and the United States involvement in Vietnam uh, through the Institute for Defense Analysis. Uh, and there was a series of protests which we'll get into, but um, maybe you could talk about the salient points of the audio we just heard as they relate to that series of events. Uh, yeah, a few things that, that I found interesting in, in that uh, audio clip. One was sort of uh, their initial concerns uh, for the aesthetics of the situation. Uh, like the, there was, they were worried about scuffing the marble, but then eventually they concerned about uh, what they, they said were political concerns. But I think it was just sort of the, a slight shift from the aesthetic to the political concerns, right? Like the creation of the barricades, in itself could be viewed, could be discussed through using aesthetic terminology, right? Um, 
another thing worth pointing out was sort of the, the amateur hour uh, dispersal order that the campus cops did, uh, which actually, instead of ending with disperse or will open fire, ends with disperse or will call the real cops. <laughs> that was a pretty, <laughs> pretty good part. Uh, and then, uh, but the, I think the most important thing was, was this quote they had from Berkeley. Um, and there's sort of multiple layers to that that's interesting. One is how Columbia, the Columbia, uh, uh, occupation was was using the Berkeley occupation, which happened four years before, as sort of a model, right? Like they were essentially recreating the the circumstances and recreating uh, the strategies that were used at Berkeley, just repeating them at Columbia. And and for anybody that took part in the more recent occupations here in Los Angeles and around the country or around the world, uh, some of this may actually sound very familiar, the, the, the setting up of committees, uh, yeah. the, the flow of information between those committees, knowing what's going on. Um, back in 2008, during the, the Democratic National Convention in Denver, um, like I'm not, I'm not a Twitter fan, but like I remember like, li like sort of getting into Twitter because because the protesters were using Twitter and other forms of social media as, as a way to disseminate this information. And then by the time of the Republican National Convention, the police had essentially a response to that. They were also using uh, this information. And there was uh, one, one of those, the, the first convention was in August, the next one was in September. So it's, it was really fascinating to see that sort of call and response, like the, the shift that the police made in response to the usage of, of social media and, and their infiltration of it after that, so. Um. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, that's like one of those things where, I mean, I think in the kind of like Occupy, you know, Occupy Los Angeles, Occupy whatever, um, that was going on, there was, the, there was, there was a, a lot of that concerns of like, well, is the, are, is the, um, research committee talking to the demands committee or whatever. Um, and you get a hint of that in this audio where he's, well, you know, at first we, you know, we set up a defense committee and it's right. that kind of, um, that kind of speech that is uh, aesthetic, but also like a kind of very practical, there's like a practical tone. Yeah. First we set up the defense committee and we set up the, and then that, and then the, the other voice who I think particularly she like, she said, like, we were worried about scratching the marble, and then, uh, you know, we were setting up the barricades, and she said, we, we, we realized we had to reinforce the barricades, and it right. was like, and then at some point, she says, anything goes, and then right after she says the whole, like, anything goes, we can build the barricades, she says, because we believe the bar barricades were political. Right. And I, like, the aestheticization of this, that kind of stuff happens, but at the same time, I like this whole... Like physically, the barricade is a political act, right. and not in the sense. I mean, I don't know. I guess that makes perfect sense. But there's a kind of um, I don't know. There's 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 some kind of like almost like alchemical thing right. that's happening there. You know, which is also oh, go ahead. Well, I think I think nothing really changes. Like she she feels there's a change, but but they're still worried about building the barricade. So it's more of like this Hegelian reversal where like you're first worried about the aesthetic situation, then you worry about the politics situation, and then you come up with sort of the 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 combining of the of the concerns of those two and you have a barricade, but but there's you're still concerned about the same things. You're just talking about it slightly differently. So in the same way that the dispersal order piece your dispersal order pieces cha right. changes forms from crumpled to flat to rainbow right. to big to little. 
Yeah, the, the initial uh, versions of it were life-sized, uh, or as close to life-sized as I could, as I could get. But uh, one of them, uh, I, I just started doing them on multiple materials, and I still pull them every few months. I make a print, a mimeograph print. Uh, I donated one to a nonprofit here in LA, and for their website, they tried to document it, but it's 80 inches wide. So the way they documented it was by taking a number of photographs and then poorly photoshopping those together. And I thought it was like this really fascinating sort of like uh, assuming for a second that the nonprofit is some sort of voice of authority. It was like like authorities like response to this uh, symbol, at least, of protest, right? This this. Uh, something that's signing for protest and, and their version of it. So I took their version of it and made another print out of that. And that, that, those prints were initially uh, photocopy transfers. I guess I was kind of updating the technology, moving from mimeograph to photocopying. And uh, then I started scanning crumpled up versions of those. I, I, it goes through multiple iterations and it's, it's sort of an ongoing process. Yeah, and I mean, the one clip from the audio we didn't mention, which is like the best, is, you know, the, this, which you reference in the quote from Berkeley. Yeah. Because apparently the guy was saying that there was like a poster on the wall that literally said, like, five students in a mimeograph machine can, like, do more damage to the university than, than an entire an, army. Which than an entire, yeah. Sounds really idealistic in this, this fascinating way. I like to think that that poster was probably mimeographed itself. Exactly. But, oh, of course. But what's interesting is, is sort of the, the, the importance of, of, of disseminating this information. And I, I really think that the technology has changed, but there's still, uh, from, from Occupy, even, even mm -hmm. now with, with uh, the occupation of Hunter, that's, that's ongoing, like the, the, these are still important concerns. And, but also going back to, to the way the mimeograph revolution sort of like uh, shaped things before the occupation at Berkeley and before the occupation at uh, Columbia, like, that sounds like this idea of like independent publishers using this this uh, media to, to to share information. It sounds suspiciously like the internet, right? Yeah, so it does, it and it also sounds suspiciously like the uh, the advent of movable type and right. and, and you can and keep cheap and cheap flyers and cheap broadsheets that in played a heavy right. uh, role in in political revolutions. In the past, and as well. you can say the same thing about the advent of radio in the teens and early twenties, and Bertolt Brecht talking about radio as I mean, he literally says, uh, Bertolt Brecht says, you know, radio is a series of pipes, like in his essay <laughs> on radio, which then like some dumb senator. Maybe he's not refers so dumb. to maybe, it. Yeah, maybe, maybe he would. Maybe, maybe is, that Republican just, senator was actually quoting tubes. Bertolt yeah. Brecht. Yeah. <laughs> it's a genius. I would love that, but. But I mean, the, the, the dissemination of information is like obviously very important. And even uh, in the audio, you've got the guy talking about, and we had two-way radios and walkie-talkies. Right. And, and of course, I mean, it's... Well, it seems like the crucial thing for a protest or an activist group to have, because if you don't have guns or you don't have the numbers or you don't have the force to counteract authorities, what you do have, and especially you know, if you're in an educational institution, and you have access to the technology, what you do have is the ability to disseminate information. So that becomes your weapon for, for all these people that we're talking about on Twitter at Occupy or with the mimeograph machine or, or whatever. And, I, and just to, as a counterpoint, and from like direct personal experience, and I don't want to sound too negative, but my experience of at Occupy walking up to the media tent 
Right. And the kind of like, I mean, from the first day when it was like, oh, come sit down and like get on the live stream to like one of the last days where it was, it had gone through so many various versions of like, I w- you would walk up and sign in and somebody would get to you to like, you would, you would literally walk up to what had turned into a whole like literally empire of media tents and it was like concatenated shells of illusion, if I can use the phrase. No, but, but you know, you walk up to the the some like literally like random person who wanted to work in the media tent, but they just, you know, weren't nerdy enough, so they were put on the front, you know, at the front line to to answer questions from jerks like me coming up and saying like, you know, hey, KPFK is going to do a show, and my friend like Kim Calder is going to be on there. Do you guys want to maybe like? you know, promote that on your Twitter feed. And they're like, well, I don't you know. There was something right. about, like, the, you know, the knowledge that, yes, that, that, like, dissemination and information getting out there is really important. But then it also became, like, a real hindrance to actually, you know, disseminating that same information. Well, access to the technology doesn't give you managerial and organizational skills. Absolutely. <laughs> that, I guess that's what I'm saying. Neither, neither does ideology. But, but yeah, but the other thing would be that, that like the technology, you know, being, I think, given too much of, at times, like much too much of a like place, um, you know, and too much importance. You know, the Twitter, the, like you said, like the cops are like, the cops are on Twitter too, man. Right. Uh, things like this. So, I, I, just for me, it, it, it feels like the, uh, that there's, there's sort of this uh, back padding that happens, excitement about like, now we've got Twitter, now we've got Facebook, now we've got this. And it, but the same thing was happening over 40 years ago. Now we've got mimeograph machines. Now we can really do some damage here. And it's, right. like, and it's happening over, you know, 100 yeah. years ago. It's right. like, now we've got broadsheets. Right. We're going to take this down. Or you can go a million and a half years ago <laughs> and, and say, now we've got hand axes. Now we've got now hand we've axes. Got hand, we're oh, really going to take axes? it to the man. Hand I'm glad axes. you brought up hand axes. I, I did. Um, <laughs> could, you, could you talk about hand axes for us? For I, I, uh, yeah, I could talk about hand axes. I, I, uh, a number of years ago, did this piece where I, I interviewed uh, uh, a hand axe collector about his collection. He's, actually, he's also sort of uh, one of the foremost scholars on uh, the aesthetics of hand axes. He uh, actually considers these... Uh, well, they're, actually, maybe I should say what hand axes oh, are. Yeah. Uh, they are uh, an ancient technology used by our genetic forebearers. Uh, the, specifically, the, the, the ones in the video are Acheulean hand axes, million and a half years old, um, used by Homo erectus. So not, not quite human as we would consider human today. But they're these amazing objects just all the same because uh, you can hold them in your hand and, and they fit in your hand just perfectly, right? And uh, so it, it's uh, sort of like reaching back a million and a half years. Uh, if, if you're into that sort of thing, it can be oh, a really I am. transcendent experience. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, this guy who collects them and he, he also, uh, he thinks of them as aesthetic objects. And there's, there's actually uh, in the literature like a, a pretty good case being made for them potentially being unusable as some of them being unusable uh, as actual because if people don't tools. know and they should look up images online because they're beautiful but a usable hand axe has it's a teardrop shaped stone with a smooth so the fat end of the teardrop is sort of a smooth section that fits perfectly in a 
in, a, in the palm of a hominid. Right. And the sort of sharp part of the teardrop is is uh, napped, I believe is the term, Chip, chipped away to become right, right. a very sharp edge and oftentimes has a tip that can also function as a drill for drilling holes in leather, for scraping leather hide, for chopping wood, for doing all sorts of great Cleaning stuff. Cleaning carcasses, yeah. Right, um, but there's some that they've found that are sharp instead of that smooth area for the palm, that sharp edge goes all the way around and they're oftentimes a little too large, correct? Correct, yeah. Some, some of them are, are clearly too heavy to to be lifted by a single person, let alone used by a single hominid for, for any functional use. And then also some made of uh, material that would not would, be pra obsidian yeah, would, would or crumble jade use, yeah. or, or, you know, they're unmarked. They haven't been used. They're just beautiful things. Yeah. So there's, there's actually a few that they have found that have uh, fossils embedded dead center in the middle of them. So clearly they're working around the fossils in this sort of way to preserve, to, to frame the fossils. So, so there's, there's, there's some arguments that could be made that some of these are actually aesthetic objects. And it's really, I think, the, the killer thing about that is we're talking about um, something related to art, like this could be art, but it's also clearly related to, to violence, to, to ripping apart wood or leather or animal flesh. But um, so, so for me, the, the, this, this video that I did back in 2008 was was about sort of this moment when aesthetics and violence were these sort of inseparable things and that that sort of predates like the marble tabletop barricades right yeah. yeah well and you also did a like a kind of in that video i feel like you did a performative gesture where you took like a a stone that was similar to it was it was the actual it was the actual i interviewed this guy and he gave me he gave me one and this, this really totally awkward moment, but he gave me a, a hand axe, and I, um, at the same time, I was really interested in the what was then being built new LAPD headquarters in downtown. And there's the if you, if anyone listening is interested, is this that a very there's a lot of interesting stories about why that building was put there, how it was built, why it was designed the way it was. It's it's essentially exists as a big like fu to the people of Los Angeles, if you if you read between the lines. How, how so specifically? Um, read between the lines for us. Well, the, that, that, the plot of land that it went on was where the old Caltrans building used to be. Uh, LAPD claimed it, even though there was already in the works, to, it would, they were going to make it into a big public park next to City Hall. But LAPD jumped on it, even though it was not large enough as a piece of land to suit their needs. So what ended up happening is they, they dispersed various functions of the LAPD around downtown. So now LAPD headquarters is actually multiple buildings spread all throughout downtown. Their motor pool is down the street, the detention center is down the street, the call center is down the street. It's, it's so LAPD headquarters is downtown. A multiplicity of authority. Right, just dispersed uh, in, in the same way that we maybe get excited about social media the LAPD has sort of spread around around through the people. The building itself is designed to be uh, uh, to mimic the buildings around it, depending on which way you're facing. It's also the windows are designed to be uh, uh, sniper proof, which is kind of fun. You should check that out. Uh, but they were building at the time that I did and this you, interview. Yeah. I, was, I, I was fascinated with the the architecture, but it, it's teardrop shaped. So so this video that I made includes a lot of sort of long lingering uh, intercut shots of, of the LAPD headquarters as it was being built. And the conclusion after uh, I was given this hand axe is me throwing the hand axe at part of the completed building. So um, in a gesture, but also in a real actual act, I really 
did do it, so it's not totally symbolic. Yeah. And the and the rock that you threw was like a million and a half years. years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it wasn't just like it, a pebble it, yeah, on right. the sidewalk. And, and, and it, it was, was yeah. it was you know the the first tools, the first instrument of violence, the first pieces of art. Like so, I don't know. Maybe hopefully trying to get back to access some some early instincts there. I don't know. Excellent. Well, we couldn't have you on and not talk about elephant. So, okay. do you want to just? Talk about it really quick. Uh, just real quick, uh, it's it's mainly uh, a building in Glassell Park. Uh, it ha houses uh, six studios, uh, so and also a gallery. And I have a studio there along with five other people. And we, in a co-op fashion, we we run a gallery out of it, and it's called Elephant. Uh, it's located at three three two five Division Street. Again, and it's elephantartspace.com, yeah, right? Elephantartspace.com, all one word. Uh, you can check it out, see what next shows there's, we're having. Yeah, there's some great shows. You guys have had some really fun shows there, including uh, Casual Dancing, which oh, was yeah. a very fun one-night performance I don't actually remember it. <laughs> yes, I don't think any of us, anyone that was there uh, really remembers the event, and it was decidedly not casual, but... Yeah, it's 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 a great space. You guys yeah. have done a really good job of uh, like bringing in uh, numerous different kinds of artists, and you know, people seem to pay attention. I know uh, Emily Joyce had a show there recently yeah. with uh, Maggie White Lamelli Prince. Right, right. Um, good stuff. So yeah, you guys bring the hits. Yeah, it's bring it's all hits. well documented on the website. You can Bianca. peruse our party photos. Yeah, yeah. Bianca D'Amico. Yeah, shout take, out to, she takes to, some good photos. To be, yeah. 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 Well, all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having yeah, me, thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, Jason. It's been great. It was fun. We'd like to thank our guests, David Shook and Jason Kunky, for being on the show today. And thank you for listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. You can go to insertblancpress.net to find this show and, and previous shows. And you can come back here every third Sunday at 3 PM to listen to future editions of The People on K-Chung Radio at kchungradio.org.